0: Well, open up your Bible, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. And as I said in my prayer, Jesus is wanting to uncover this morning. He wants to bring things out in the light. And, and sometimes parables are powerful means for Him to do that, to expose us in a good way. This is not Jesus being cruel, even though some people would call this a hard saying of Jesus in parable form. He's not being cruel. Jesus is being compassionate to tell us these things. And it's good to be uncovered. Metaphorically, okay? (laughs) It's good to be exposed spiritually for good or for bad. And here's why. Here's why. And I want to give you a little bit of my perspective on this before we jump into the outline. Why it's good to be uncovered, for these truths to be uncovered. Number one, because... This could serve to deepen and widen your gratitude for exactly what God has done for you in Christ. This is another way to go much deeper into your understanding of the gospel. I mean, gospel, the word, means good news. Does that represent good news to you, or do you grow tired and weary of hearing it? If that's the case for you, maybe today would be what Jared Wilson called... uh, gospel wakefulness for you, you would come to appreciate in new ways, through new dimensions and new understandings, exactly what God has done for you, how lost you were, how far away from God that you were, how hopeless and dire was your situation. We don't have to resent it when we hear those reminders. In fact, we should welcome them because that deepens our praise. It really does. Your worship will only rise as high as the depth of your understanding of what God has done for you. And so every time we have reminders like this in the Bible, it's good. We should welcome them, and we should ask God to open our eyes. We shouldn't feel threatened by it. I know so many people, even Christians sometimes, uh, and I've done it myself, like, oh, boy, this is a, this is a hard passage. Well, it doesn't have, that doesn't have to be the perspective. This could be a glorious passage. I'm going to share my own experience a little bit later in the message of something that was just life-altering for me when I was 23 years old and read one of these hard sayings of Jesus and, and read a message on it. So this can serve to deepen your understanding and appreciate, appreciation of the gospel. That's one way. Here's the second way that, that uncover and, and exposing can be good. It can dislodge and expose maybe some deep-seated resentment you have toward God and get that out into the open so you can deal with it. Because listen, human beings in our fallen state, we are naturally suppressors. Even psychologists will tell you what the Bible has already told you. In Romans 1, Paul says, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We hold it down. We resent it, and we don't want it to rise up and, and look at us in the face. So we hold it down, right? We restrain it. We do that with things that human beings would remind us of, and we also do it theologically and spiritually, things that God sends messengers to remind us of. We want to keep that hidden and keep it pushed down. And it festers and it gets infected and there's gangrene spiritually. We have to confront those things. Even as Christians, we still have issues where we're not, it's like I mentioned last week, we really resent God's authority in this one particular area. And we need to talk to God about that. It needs to be up and out in the open. And maybe I can give you an illustration of this. There's a place in the Bible in Romans chapter 11. Verses 33 through 36. And this many theologians would call this a doxology. Okay, that's a 25 cent word that means erupting in praise. Paul has been Romans is a letter written to Christians, written to a church. It's 16 chapters long. It's pretty long. It's it's the Apostle Paul's magnum opus theologically. He's just rehearsing and 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 elaborating on all the beauties of the gospel, who we were outside of Christ, what God has done in Jesus to bring us near and what the future is for us, and then giving us some practical instructions on how to live. Well, Paul has waxed eloquent for 11 chapters. And at the very end of chapter 11, he says this, "'Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things... To him, be the glory forever. amen. See, you may be tempted to read this and think oh bless bless paul 's heart he 's getting a little melodramatic here, he just really can 't contain himself he 's getting really emotional. calm down, Paul, hold it in check, crank it back a little bit uh, don 't let your feelings rule your life, Paul. I used to think that when I read this. Get a hold of yourself for crying out loud. This is embarrassing. Why do you have to cry, Paul, every time you talk about the gospel, but what you have to understand this this is This is chapter 11. Let me read some of the text that Paul wrote before this that led up to this, okay? Because this is the crescendo. This is the volcano erupting. The lava that was underneath. Let me read some of these things that he said. Check this out. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." That's a hard saying, isn't it? He's basically saying every human being who has ever been born is born with a natural bent and inclination to suppress the truth, to hold it down by acts of unrighteousness and ungodliness, even in our thoughts, our words, or our deeds. Paul made that confession in chapter 1. And then he made this one in chapter 3. There are none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Say, man, Paul, that's a hard saying too. Well, he keeps going. Listen to this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's chapter 3, verse 23. Chapter 6, Paul says the wages of sin is death. Chapter 7, Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 8. Paul says, the carnal mind, that means the natural, unbelieving, unregenerated mind, is at enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You're like, what is Paul doing here? Well, don't you understand, friend, all of those hard sayings led up to his praise because he's saying, we are so sinful. We have been so contrary to the law and the will and the love and the perfections of God. We have strayed so far from Him, but God. see, Because the rest of the first 11 chapters, not only do they talk about our natural enmity against God, our carnal minds, the wages of sin is death, it also talked about how far God went to such great lengths God went to rescue us. He set aside His lofty throne in heaven, He came down into the murky, fallen waters of humanity. He crawled inside a human body. He subjected himself to time, to suffering, to weakness, to death, shame, humiliation, and execution. Why? To love these enemies of his who didn't deserve his love. One of the songs John led us in earlier is called 10,000 Reasons. And I love that thought because all the Apostle Paul is doing in the first 11 chapters of Romans is giving us 10,000 reasons why we ought to praise God. Because listen... Hard saying here, but I hope, I hope you, can, you can share what Paul says. God could have cast all of us into the lake of fire and would have done us no wrong or injustice. That's gospel truth. That's biblical truth. But is that what he's done? No, look at all of you sitting in here today under the, under the sound of gospel preaching. God has shown you mercy and grace and grace and patience. He's been long-suffering. <laughs> it's amazing. So that's why Paul said what he said. But listen, if you don't go through the first 11 chapters of Romans, you're not going to have a doxology like this. You can't just brush all this aside and say, well, that's offensive. That's ridiculous. No, 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 no. Don't brush that aside. Don't sweep it under the rug. Bring it out. Uncover it, because that is worship fuel. That's worship fuel. Not only will that align your heart and your mind? That'll change your life. That, will, that can absolutely transform your life and your worship. It will. Because so many Christians seem to live neglecting and lacking gratitude for God. Why is that? Well, they've forgotten what God did for them. So this parable can, can uncover that. It can help you. Don't resent the parable. Don't think, oh, this is just too hard. I don't want to hear this. No, we should, we should welcome this. If you ever get tired of hearing about the great lengths and widths and expense that God went to to rescue you, there's really a heart problem. We ought to welcome these things. Now, when Jesus told this parable, it uncovered the religious leader's hatred for God and their plan to kill His Son. It exposed their hypocrisy and that's why it led ultimately to Jesus' arrest, His betrayal, and His execution. This parable, I believe, precipitated that. So, The title of this message is Uncover, and there's three points here, okay? Three truths for us this morning, whether you're a Christian or whether you're an unbeliever. Same truths are going to be uncovered, okay? Truth number one, we are renters, not owners. Or you could say it this way, we're tenants, not owners. We're workers, not masters. Truth number two, He sends us many messengers to remind us of that. He's so gracious to send us reminders. And so often we don't, we don't like them, do we? (laughs) We don't like those messengers. We mistreat them. We dismiss them. We resent them. And third is, I want you to consider the takeaway for you. So point number one, we are renters, not owners. So check this out. Let's look at the parable here. Oh, I didn't start my clock. Uh Uh-oh. What was that? About five minutes? (laughs) 20? No, who said that? (laughs) So um, Mark chapter 12, this is a A parable that would have instantly evoked images of uh, Israel for them. Because every time that you would see or hear about a vineyard in Israel, that was their national symbol. Israel had always been referred to as God's vineyard. So when Jesus is telling this parable, everyone would instantly know, hey, he, he he is talking about the nation of Israel. And the tenants and the workers were obviously the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the Sanhedrin, the very people that had accosted Jesus in the previous passage in the temple when he was teaching and said, who gave you the right to cleanse our temple, turn over the tables, chase the money changers out, and teach the way that you're teaching? Who gave you the authority to do this? Well, this is Jesus' answer. He says, I will tell you who gave me the authority by telling you a story. See, you guys think you're the owners, but you're not. This is not your city. This is the city of God. Jerusalem is the city of God. And this is God's temple, not yours. This is my house. That's why I can come in here and start rearranging the furniture. I have every right to. It belongs to me. Your life belongs to me. I'm the master. I planted this vineyard, and you owe me the fruit that it produces, if there is any, <laughs> to give. You know, part of the truth in these passages is they were fruitless they were cursed they were withered up so uh anytime that people would talk about a vineyard this would be very familiar concepts to an israelite in fact the the hillside where jesus was teaching you could overlook the temple where he was at and vineyards would have dotted the landscape everywhere and it was well known that many owners of vineyards would lease out their land it was called sharecropping They would pay a fee to the owner of these vineyards to live there, to work there, and to be able to enjoy some of the fruit of their labors, right? And there was also, history tells us, that when Jesus was teaching this, during that time in Israel and Palestine, there were a lot of revolts by the people that had lived on the land for so long, they began to think it was their land. My vineyard. This is mine. No, 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 no. Here's what's interesting. In Leviticus chapter 19... God lays out the rules for sharecropping. And he says when somebody plants a vineyard and invites tenants or renters to live on the land and to work it, the owner has to allow five years. Five years until the fruit is ripe enough to be able to harvest. Five years is a long time. We're on our fifth year in this church. I can barely remember the, the first year we were here. It seems so long ago. Seriously. So that's a long time, right? for a master to not send anybody to collect rent. Can you imagine if you rented a house and he says, you know what, put your money away because in five years, baby, I'm coming back and I'm getting my rent, so save up. First year, you'd be like, this is a sweet deal. I like. Anybody in here rent, by the way? Wouldn't that be nice, five years, no rent, right? You're like, unless it's retroactive. But anyway, after the fifth year, you're thinking, this is a good deal. This is my yard, my house, my property, This is sweet, I like this. And then there's a knock on the door. Time to pay the rent. Now, how would you feel? Well, five years is a long time. You'd start to feel some ownership. You may start to to feel a little bit of resentment toward the reminder that this is not your house, not your property, it's mine. By rights, it's mine, and and I've taken good care of you. Haven't I fixed the dishwasher when it broke? Haven't I repaired the roof when the hurricane came? Haven't I had the yard mowed for you? Or maybe not, depending on your agreement, right? But that's what was going on. You know, we, we live, another illustration, we live on property that's, we don't, we don't rent it, but there's an HOA fee. You gotta love those things, right? Homeowners Association. We got a little yard, but there's this big common ground area in the back of our yard, and there's a pond there, and there's trees, and there's a lot of land. And we've lived there for five years, and my kids love to fish, they love to play, they love to be outside. They'd rather be outside than anywhere. Most of the time, unless they have a phone or something, you know. Anyway, so it's been five years, and and they've began to think that that common ground is actually our yard. It's theirs. So I'll go out there, and there's toys everywhere. There's a tent over here. There's a boat they drug down there that we made. Sometimes there's garbage and litter over over there. Why is that? Because we start to feel like this is mine. This belongs to me. And I'm wait. I'm waiting. Every time I get the mail, I'm waiting for an HOA. Letter with a sweet little picture of, our, of the pond down there. that has got garbage everywhere, right? And maybe it's not that. You get the idea. This is reminding us. This parable is reminding Israel, and it's reminding us. This life is not ours. We start to act like owners instead of tenants, instead of renters. And I know we're chuckling right now. Oh, this is kind of cute. But, but l- let me apply this. Even for Christians, this life is not your life. God gave this to you as a gift. You are to be a steward. God wants you to be fruitful. He does, and he's given you everything you need. Check this out. Ch- check out what he says. A man planted a vineyard. He did all the work. He planted it. I grew up on a farm. Have you ever seen all the work that goes into planting anything? You've got to plow the soil. There's fertilizer that has to go out. You have to, in Israel, uh, it was said by some of the Jews that when God created the world, he dumped all the rocks in Palestine. If you had a field in Israel, you had to clean out all the rocks. Rocks everywhere. In fact, that's why all the rock fences are everywhere. You know, smart workers, right? Take the rocks and just build a fence around it. So this guy did all the work. He plowed up the field. He dug out the rocks. He built a fence. He built a tower. He dug a wine press. All of those things are loving and tender. Seriously, there's protection from wild animals. The tower was for security. It was for storage. It was for some of the people. The towers were so big they could live there. I mean, he gave, them, he gave them the best possible scenario to be producing a healthy and fruitful harvest at the end of five years. Gave them everything they need. How kind was this vineyard owner? How kind has God been to us? I mean, this was in the Old Testament. What has God given us as Christians? I mean, he gave us a nation's, at least for now, we are free to worship. Praise God. You know how many nations have to meet secretly, underground? with the threat of discovery, persecution, and even death. It happens all the time. If you get Voice of the Martyrs magazine, there's always a country and a, and a person in jail to pray for, or a family that's left behind picking up the pieces of a martyred husband and father missionary. We have, a, we have freedom here. Thank God for that. And also, look, spiritually, we have the completed Word of God, the Old Testament, the New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit that's been given to us at Pentecost, right? We have messengers, we have preachers, we have teachers, we have the church, we've got thousands of years of church history. Some of the best and brightest have come along and helped us understand the Bible better and our obligation to God. What a gift. What a vineyard God gave us, right? We have it easy in so many ways. God wants us to be fruitful. But beyond that, what is it that you have that God has given you on loan? Your time, your talents, Your energy, your intellect, your wealth, your power, all of these are God's. Your home, your body, your sexuality, your mind, your family, your home, all of these things are God's. That's not bad news for us. That's good. He's a much better landlord than we are of these things, right? He's not stingy or begrudging. He lavishingly bestows gifts on us so that we can render the fruit that comes from those. This is His vineyard. So often, we act like owners instead of tenants. We forget. That's exactly what had happened to the religious leaders. And they were fine. I said this last week. They were fine with Jesus having His miracle ministry in Galilee and Judea and Samaria. They were fine with that. Just keep Jesus on the peripheral of your life. But He started getting closer to Jerusalem. He walked right into Jerusalem and claimed to be king and accepted everybody's worship when they said, Hosanna, God, Hosanna, God, you're the Messiah, save us. And then he marched right into the temple and rearranged the furniture. They didn't like that. See, that's their temple. That's their city. And God says, no, it's not, it's mine. And that's why they ask him, by whose authority do you do these things? And that's why he told this parable. He said, see, you guys think you're owners. This is your city, your town, your life, your temple, but you're wrong. It's God's. And I'm his messenger that has been sent to remind you of this. See, you killed all the other messengers. Just like this story. Look at this. Just like, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Just like the story, all the prophets, all the priests, all the teachers that God had sent. Hebrews 11 talks about that. People of whom the world was not worthy. Some of them were sawn in two. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets in Israel. Tradition tells us, That King Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings in the Old Testament, that God eventually converted, by the way, but before he was converted, he sawed Isaiah in two with a long saw. You imagine that? He killed the messenger. He didn't want to hear it. Zechariah was, I believe, it was Zechariah was killed between the altar and the and the temple. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit. And then God sent his son, Jesus. Surely they will respect my son. And what did they do? They said, from afar, they're looking, oh, look, here comes the heir. Let's kill him and we'll get the inheritance. Man, this, this story, sometimes God uses a story. It's like an aha moment, right? You remember in the Old Testament, whenever Nathan, the prophet, confronted David who had committed adultery, and he told him this nice little story about a poor man and a rich man, and the rich man had all the lambs in the world, and the poor man had one little lamb, that was like his daughter that lived with him. And the rich man had a guest that came to spend the night. And he was hungry. So instead of getting one of his own sheep, he sent for and demanded that the, rich, that the poor man's little lamb be brought and was slaughtered. And Nathan told that story in the presence of David. And David said, surely as the Lord lives, this man shall die. And remember what Nathan said? He said, you're the man. You're that man. That's what you did, David. This story is for the this story is for the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders. He's telling them this story and when they're hearing it, they're beginning to realize this is about us. God uses stories like that to, uh, to help us see the truth, to uncover, to expose, to bring it into the light. And this is point number two. We despise messengers, don't we? We don't like those reminders. Especially when we're in unbelief and haven't been saved, but even sometimes when we're Christians, we mistreat the reminders. We dismiss the messengers, don't we? Like he did. Look, look at the rest of this. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, this is pretty... Just the word again, you can underline that in your Bible. I mean, wouldn't that... If you were the owner, if you were the owner of that vineyard, wouldn't that be the end of the matter? If you had unlimited power... That'd be it for me, man. If I own property and I sent a messenger to collect rent and they were beaten and sent away, watch out. I'm I'm loading up my ammunition and I'm coming to collect rent and evict. That's not God. See, that's why this is not just a hard saying. This is a good parable to remind you how gracious and patient and long-suffering the Lord is. How forbearing He is. That's part of His majesty. I mean, if, it, if the first messenger God ever sent to you was the last, how many people would be here right now? I wouldn't be. Man, I heard the gospel hundreds of times and rejected it. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and him they killed. Oh, my goodness. Let this shock you. This is, this is radical. It really is. This is scandalous. You know, there's songs we sing that some Christians don't like. You guys may not know this, and maybe I shouldn't tell you, but I am, you know, I want to help you. There's a song that that Christians sing called Reckless Love. It's one of my son's favorite songs. And there's some Christians that have a hard time with that because they can't seem to bring themselves to describe God's love as reckless. It just sounds a little too much. And I get that, I understand that. But if you read a parable like this, do you not see where lyrics like that come from? Does this not sound irresponsible for a landowner to enable people like this? This is this guy crazy. They're killing your messengers, man, and you're letting them stay on your property and live? What the heck? That's irresponsible. That's dangerous. That's a little bit reckless, isn't it? It's exactly what God does to us. He's so patient. It almost seems negligent for God to, to allow us and tolerate us the way he does but that's part of his glory. That's part of Paul saying the depths and the riches of God. Oh my word. It's amazing. It's unspeakable grace and compassion. Grace, you know what grace is? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a little acrostic. It's you getting what you don't deserve, which is, which is to live. <laughs> Salvation. We don't deserve that. And him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Wow. What will the owner of the vineyard do? See, this is Jesus, clever Jesus. And is not the not quite the right word. But do you know what Jesus is doing? He is forcing, he's uncovering truth here. He's forcing those leaders and us to see ourselves for who we really are and how we really are. It's interesting because Matthew, this is Mark's gospel. Matthew tells the same story and I want to read his version of it, okay? And they both are okay and they fit together. They don't contradict one another. They both give us a, full, a more full-orbed version of what happened. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the Pharisees are listening, okay? They think they're the owners, remember. They think they're the owners of the vineyard. And Jesus asks this question, and they can't help themselves, they answer. And they say, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. And they're like, oh, did I just say that? They're telling on themselves, aren't they? Isn't that beautiful how Jesus uses truth like this? He does. How many of you guys know who Jordan Peterson is? You've heard of him? Oh, man. Well, this may not mean anything to any of you, but that's okay. Uh, I was watching an interview that Jordan Peterson did with a British journalist named Kathy Newman, and this thing went viral. By the end of the first day this was posted, almost half a million people had seen it, and here's why. Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist, and and she is a far left-leaning British journalist. And he's uh, he's Canadian. And he he made the news because he wrote a book, and he was protesting a Canadian law that was about to come down the pike that was going to force people to use whatever gender pronoun that transgenders wanted them to use. And he said, I'm not doing that. Now, this guy's not even a Christian, okay? And he said, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do it. This is violating the freedom of speech that we have as Canadians. I'm not doing it. So he, got, he was getting in a lot of trouble, and she wanted to interview him. Well, you can imagine, this is like a cat and a dog, right? They're going back and forth. And it's interesting because he's, he's so clever. He's so clever, man. She would say, so what you're saying is this? And he'd say, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. But there came a point in the interview she was getting very flustered, and, and I, want to read to you the, uh, I want to read to you the transcript. She was interrogating him because, again, he was exercising his right to free speech and not using certain pronouns when addressing transgender people. And she said something like this, Why should your right to freedom of speech trump a transgender person's right not to be offended? And he answered this, Well, you're certainly willing to risk offending me in the pursuit of truth. Why should you have the right to do that? It's been rather uncomfortable being here talking with you, but you're exercising your freedom of speech to certainly risk offending me, and that's fine. More power to you as far as I'm concerned. And this look came on her face. That look. <laughs> and, she, and she paused, and she sighed, and she struggled to find a response until Jordan Peterson said, Ha! Gotcha! And he wasn't being vindictive, vindictive at all. He was saying, I got you. And she said this, She said, you have caught me. You have caught me. She said, I'm trying to work it all up in my head. Yeah, it took a while. It took a while. She was flabbergasted the rest of the interview. And when I think of that, uh, when I think of that, I think Jesus did that so often. This story was a, ha, got you. Except he didn't speak like that. He's spoken (laughs) probably in Greek or Hebrew, okay? He was saying, I've got you. You guys have told on yourselves You're telling me, what would a vineyard owner do to tenants like that? He'd destroy them and kick them to pieces, right? And then at the very end of this, you see what it says. It says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Yeah, you think? That's exactly what he was doing. And they didn't like it. Why? Because they don't want to be exposed. They don't want a messenger to come and remind them, you have this vineyard by God's lease. You owe him the fruits, and they don't have any fruits. They don't want a king. They don't want anybody to be in authority over them. And sometimes, let's be honest, we don't either. We want that common ground property to be ours. We don't want any homeowner's association. We're the owners. It's our life. It's our body. It's our money. It's our time. It's our weekend. I mean, I could apply this in so many ways to Christians. I don't want to cheapen it or trivialize it, but man, there's something here for everybody. God, We shouldn't begrudgingly give God the fruit that belongs to him by right. He's not being unjust or outrageous to demand it of us. In fact, he's being loving to send messengers to remind us you're using the land wrong. You're using it wrong. See, we're supposed, we're supposed to tend this vineyard for God's profit, not our own, and by God's word. And sometimes he comes and sends gentle, loving messengers to remind us you're doing it wrong and your life's going to be wrecked. Sometimes God sends messengers to wreck our lives so that we don't wreck them. And we still resent those messengers. Let me tell you a story. When I turned, oh man, 19, I I, I stayed local my first year of college. I wanted to stay close to home and save money, you know, still live with mom and dad and all of that, eat their food, make mom do my laundry, all of that. Uh, but I got tired of that. I wanted to be my own man. I wanted to be master of my soul and captain of my fate, And I wanted to be my own king. And so I moved five hours away and went to the University of Arkansas. And I promptly joined a fraternity when I moved there. Now look, some people had great experiences with Greek organizations, fraternities, sororities. I get that. Some of them are even based on Christian principles. And that's wonderful. That's rare too. <laughs> My experience with a fraternity was I moved, like the parable in Luke 15, I was a prodigal. I moved as far away as I could from my mom, from my dad, from my church. I didn't want anybody telling me how to live my life. I resented it. I was sick of it. I was sick and tired of it, and I wanted to be my own man. So I got in my car and drove five hours and joined a fraternity and lived with about 200 other guys, and man, did I sow my wild oats. Oh my goodness, I sold my wild oats. And I'm not up here going to glorify sin. It was a very hard season for me. Very hard. And I only made it about six months. And God picked me up by the hair of my head and dragged me back home and said, you don't belong here. You can't handle this. You need to be back in my vineyard. But you know what he used to do it? He used a lot of things. There was a guy that was part of a campus ministry that, was, that was, had a presence there at the University of Arkansas. Every single week... And God's providence, he arranged my schedule. I, was, I worked full-time, not full-time, 32 hours is full-time. I worked at Walmart to help pay for the expenses of living in a frat house and partying, right? Um, and with my schedule with school, because I was a full-time student and a full-time employee of Walmart, there was just a short window of time I was actually in that fraternity house and not running errands for all the, you know, the members because I was a pledge. We got hazed and all of that. But I kid you not, every single time that campus guy, and he was just a little bit older than me, every time he would come, and the front doors were open, and he would come through the front door, and he would walk down the bottom floor and the top floor, and he would knock on every door, and I would always forget, and I would open it. And I would see him there with this smile on his face and with the Bible in his hand. He would say, hey, it's me again. I just wanted to know, do you, do you want to talk about the Bible, and you, and you want to pray with me, and I'm just here to talk with you. And I would say, no, I don't have time, I don't want to. I'm i a Christian, no thank you, I don't, I don't need to talk to you right now, and I would shut the door. Week after week after week, and you know what, I forgot that guy's name, I wish I could meet him and thank him, I cannot imagine the amount of fortitude and courage and faith it took to do that, because most of the time guys will be just hammered in the room, even in the middle of the day. That guy kept coming back week after week, I didn't want to see him, I grew, and look, he wasn't lecturing me, he never preached a sermon on why partying is wrong, and you know. He didn't do any of that. Just the very sight of him annoyed me with that smirk on his face and that Bible in his hand. I didn't want him there. I didn't want a reminder. I didn't want a messenger. And you know, if that guy, I will tell you this, if that guy would have been more forceful at that time in my life, I can see myself like physically pushing him out of my room and shutting the door and said, dude, don't you ever come back here. I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I'm going to talk to the the head of our fraternity. Do you even have permission to be on the property? I would have gone there if he would have, but he was very kind, he was a gentleman. You know what that was? That was God's gentle, loving reminder because that guy put a rock in my shoe without really saying much. Put a rock in my shoe and it tormented me. And it's God saying, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? This is not why I created you. You're going to end up dead or with a DWI, which I did eventually end up with a DWI. You're going to ruin your life and somebody else's. You're using the vineyard wrong. You're living your life all wrong. And I love you too much to let you go get away with it. There's, there's a passage in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. You want some dark reading? <laughs> Read the book of Judges. One of the darkest, violent, gory, bloody seasons in all the Old Testament. And there's this refrain that the author keeps saying over and over, over and over. Some of you will know it when I quote it. He says, There was no king in Israel in those days, and every man did what what was right in his own eyes <laughs> I moved 5 hours away to Fayetteville Arkansas and there was no king in my life and I did whatever was right in my own eyes and man did I mess my life up but you know the bible says in Joel that God can restore the years that the locust have eaten and man did he do that for me but I didn't want those messengers and listen it may be it doesn't have to be a campus pastor or a campus minister maybe it's just a friend encouraging you to follow Christ and you're sick of it. You're tired of it. Maybe it's a, pa- maybe it's a pastor. <laughs> maybe somebody keeps dragging you to church, man, and I'm the messenger, and you're sick of me. That's okay. I get it. I was there once. You know, maybe the messenger for you is a trial. I'm not saying that every hard time you experience as a human being is God spanking you or chasing you. I'm not saying that. We don't know that. Don't be Job's friends. We don't know why things happen. But sometimes God sends messengers to remind you, hey, You're doing it wrong. This is not your life. It's my life. You're not living it according to my word, and you're not bearing fruit because of that. God is so gracious to do that for us. It could be a sickness. It could be a conflict relationally that you keep having over and over and over. And God, it's a a reminder. It's a messenger. Don't kill the messenger. Thank God for him. And ask God, what are you trying to tell me? Lord, is this one of your messengers? Are you trying to tell me something? Help my head and my heart to not be so thick and callous so that it gets through. Sometimes God put, puts rocks in our shoes. Man, He did me. It can be a trial, a conflict, a sickness, even a tragedy. Even somebody close to you can be a real reminder when they get sick or hurt or taken away. It's a reminder, man, look, life is short. It's a messenger. I don't care what self-help books or what motivational speakers You're listening to? You know what they'll tell you? This is your life. And do with it whatever you want. The Bible tells you the exact opposite. You belong to the Lord. And that's a good confession. He's a much better master and king and vineyard owner than we will ever be. And he has nothing but good intentions for us. So take the crown off your head and cast it at the feet of Jesus where it belongs. Do it willingly and lovingly. Welcome those messengers. Don't despise them. And and let me ask you an application question. What messengers has God been sending to you? Has He been sending you some messengers? Don't despise them. Don't hurt them. Don't kill them. Don't see them as just interruptions and annoyances. Welcome them and ask God, teach me, Lord, what's the message here? Point number three. um, One of two outcomes is inevitable here. And this is where kind of the rubber meets the road. What is God telling you through this sermon and through this message today? See, this story wasn't over when the son was killed. That wasn't the end. Surely they'll respect the son. Surely they'll honor the heir. No. You know what, you know what that messenger told them? Oh, the owner must be dead. Let's kill the son and then this whole thing is ours. And they killed the son and they threw him, which is, I mean... Do you see the the wisdom of God here? And Jesus is predicting, this is prophecy. Jesus is telling them, look, I know your hearts. And this is exactly what you're going to do to me. To the letter. You're going to kill me. You're going to throw me outside of Jerusalem. You know where Jesus suffered? Outside the city gates, it says. Between two criminals. On a hill. Golgotha. Calvary. You're going to cast me out of the city. You're going to execute me shamelessly. You're going to humiliate me. But that's not the end of it. Look at this. This is the best part of this parable. Jesus says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected. Jesus is the rock, He's the stone. Rejected by the builders, by the tenants. They rejected Him. What an ugly, hideous stone. This could never be used for anything. They rejected it, but it's become the cornerstone, the capstone. In the temple, there would have been a stone, a capstone. It would have been the most exalted and elevated piece of architecture for everyone to see it and admire how beautiful it is. Yeah, you kicked me outside the city, you executed me, but you know what? God raised me up and elevated me and exalted me, and I'm the most beautiful thing in this temple. See, the worst thing that these tenants could do to this son was actually the best thing. I, it's crazy. It's sovereignty. It's like this was God's plan all along. You're not derailing God's plan. You're fulfilling it. You're fulfilling God's plan. And look, I love I was telling Craig this earlier. There's actually, is there a question mark in verse 11 in your translation of this? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Question mark. What's God doing? Asking us here, is this marvelous in your eyes? Does this offend you? Let me just ask you, just between me and you and the Lord, or maybe just between you and the Lord, is this story, are you resenting this in your heart right now, saying, this is too hard, Pastor Tommy? Let's get to to the good stuff. I don't like this. Oh, this isn't marvelous in your eyes? This is the gospel, friends. I hope this is marvelous. I hope this is one of 10,000 other reasons to give you to sing in your heart today for how majestic and glorious and gracious and loving God is. When I was twenty three years old, I moved to Florida. I was a brand new believer, brand new. Didn't know anything, just knew that I had been a sinner and that God had graciously saved me and I didn't deserve it. That's all I knew. I was like the guy that said, Man, I don't know, I was blind and now I see it, it's all I know. And but I knew that God was calling me into ministry in some way. I didn't know how deep or what level I didn't know. I was a carpenter and I was still working and so I moved in with a pastor. Very loving family that welcomed me into their home. And the mom um, bought me Jonathan Edwards' two-volume set by Hendrickson Press. And those books are, <laughs> there must be, it's, it's as thick as the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it's like in four font, double-columned. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could spend the rest of my life and never read through that, you know. Um, but there's too much Netflix to watch, right? No, I'm just kidding. So I started reading through, picking through, and I remember one night, really late one night, in volume two, buried in the middle of volume two, I found a sermon. Now this is Jonathan Edwards, and most of you are probably like me, grown up, you heard about him in high school. And he was the preacher who preached what? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was one of those old, cold-hearted, detached Puritans that wore a powdered wig and tried to find people who were having fun and stopped the fun, right? Um, they're not telling you the whole truth about Jonathan Edwards, amazing pastor, who was actually kicked out of his congregation and went to minister to uh, the Indians at Stockbridge uh, who had a kindergarten-level intelligence and eventually died of a smallpox vaccination. Incredible life, incredible story. But buried in Volume 2, I found a sermon called, check this out, Men Are Naturally God's Enemies. Now, don't get angry, okay? Hear hear me out. I found that sermon about probably midnight or 1 in the morning. And I was just so my curiosity was so peaked. I read the thing. Now Jonathan Edwards preached for like two hours, right? This was long, and I remember. I think I stayed up half the night reading that thing. And I, I, no, I'm I'm not the brightest knife in the drawer. I'm from Arkansas. I'm still learning to read and write and all that. So his vocabulary is deep, and I'm reading this thing. And I, have you guys ever read something or heard something as a Christian, and you really do believe like God saved you all over again? Have you ever had that experience? You would think, well, what in the world? I I was no longer God's enemy, okay? I was a Christian. I was a newbie. But reading that sermon, all the reasons that Edwards was laying out, why a person who is unconverted, he's an unbeliever, he has naturally made himself an enemy of God. He's going through all these reasons. It was rational. It was logical. It was coherent. It was biblical. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, oh, my word. Nobody had ever told me how deep my resentment and my animosity against God had been until I really read this sermon. And like at three in the morning, I'm on my knees in this little bonus room above the garage of this pastor in plush carpet, and I'm crying. And I'm thinking, Lord, I was one of your enemies. You could have executed. You could have squashed me like a bug and would have done me no wrong. You would have been just and fair and righteous and doing that. But you tolerated me. You sent messenger after messenger after messenger that I mistreated some of them and dismissed some of them. But you were long-suffering. You held out. And I, wanted to, I thought I would read. We're going we're to close out here. But I thought I wanted to read one of the things that Jonathan Edwards said in that. He took as, a, as his passage Romans 5 verse 10, which says this. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son... Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, just just take that verse. For if when we were what? Enemies. Say it out loud. For if when we were what? Enemies. When did Jesus die for you? After you waved the white flag? Nope. When you were his enemy. He died for you. Right then, when you were his enemy. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. You couldn't, you wouldn't. You were unable, you were unwilling. No, Jesus had to come down here. We weren't going up there. We were shaking our fist. He came down here and condescended and came to his enemies and offered peace to them. That is is so glorious and incomprehensible for us to even wrap our minds around. But Edwards, in that sermon, he talked about ways that you know that you resent God. And I can't can't believe I'm preaching this and you guys are smiling. This is awesome. I love this church. Check this out. This is what Edwards said. And this didn't make me angry. It's what I'm telling you. Hard sayings don't have to make us angry. It just blew me away. Here's what he said. He talked about how people who are unconverted have a hatred toward God that very often lies uncovered or very often lies hidden. We suppress it. People say, hey, I don't hate God. I love God. I love God. Oh, oh really? Well, let, let the messengers come and remind you this is his vineyard and you owe him rent. And then see if the animosity starts to rise and bubble to the surface, right? Check this out. Unbelievers entertain a very low and contemptible thought of God. Whatever honor and respect they may pretend and make a show of towards God, if their practice be examined, it will show that they certainly look upon him as a being uh, that is but little to be regarded. I know this is archaic language. Bear with me. The language of their heart is, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? They count Him worthy neither to be loved nor feared. Oh, when I read that, I, got, I, I showed Melissa this. I found volume two and I showed her. I had highlighted and underlined the whole thing. you know, But especially that one. They count Him worthy neither to be loved nor feared. That was me. All my teenage years. If somebody would have said, Do you hate God? I would have said, Heck no, I love God. He's awesome. Mean he ain't God. Fist bump. It's like, but... Do you worship Him? Do you serve Him? Do you fear Him? No, no, but we're we're not enemies. We're friends. It's like, really? Is that how you treat your friends? You ignore them? Right? (laughs) He goes on. They hear God as an infinitely holy, pure, and righteous being, and they do not like Him upon this account. They have no relish of such qualifications. They take no delight in contemplating them. Me, 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 me as a teenager. They see no matter of beauty or loveliness, nor taste any sweetness in them. It is evident that the mind of man and woman is naturally averse to thinking about God. And since if any thoughts of him be suggested to the mind, they soon go away. Me. When that guy would come to my dorm room and knock on the door and say, Can I talk to you about God? No, thank you. Go away. I'm good. And I would promise you, after three minutes, I was already thinking about girls and alcohol again. The thought of God went so fast out of my mind because I didn't want to think about God. I didn't relish him. I took no sweet delight in contemplating him. Maybe somebody is in this auditorium and that's you right now. They do not love to have much to do with God. The natural tendency of the heart of man is to fly from God and keep at a distance from him as far off as possible. Man, did Edwards nail it or what? And then he quoted this verse from Psalm chapter 10, and I've never forgotten it. He said, the wicked in his proud countenance. I almost forgot it. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. And he says this, God is in none of his thoughts. See, I always thought when the Bible describes wicked people, they're like shaking their fist at heaven, which they are at times. And they have slanted eyebrows and sharp teeth. You know, the Bible says here, you know what the essence of wickedness is? You have no thought of God. Never think of Him at all, for good or for bad. He's just indifferent really, right? Until the messengers come. And this is what Edwards said. And, and I promise, we're closing here. Edwards said, There is in every natural person a seed of malice against God. And it often dreadfully breaks forth though it may in great measure lie hidden in secure times when God leaves us alone. Yet a very little thing will set it in a rage. Man, me, me, me. As a teenager, a very little thing will set it in a rage. And that's the Pharisees too. Jesus told this parable they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. They did not want to be reminded that God is their master. He's their king. He's their Lord. This is His life. His life. It's His. Man, something happened in my heart that night. This did not make me angry. It sobered me. It made me cherish the gospel so much more. Because listen, I didn't just fall down and God needed to pick me up and dust me off. I just need, didn't need to pick myself up and put myself back together again. If you ever read any version of Christianity that tells you that, discard it, get rid of it. There's reasons the Bible uses language like born again to describe a Christian conversion. You're born again. You couldn't... What did you do to to make yourself be born? Answer, nada, nothing. There's reasons the Bible describes us as dead in our sins. What can a dead person do? Rot, that's what. (laughs) You can't resurrect yourself from the dead, bro. Listen... Have you ever visited a funeral home or a morgue? I've never seen a dead body rise up and say, (laughs) Ta-da! Dead people don't do that. The Spirit of God has to send His power and quicken you. There's reasons the Bible uses language like, You are a new creation. You're so far gone, God has to do an entirely new work of recreating you. Because you're ruined. Your heart is so filled with corruption and malice. God has to do a new work, and He does. He loves to do that. He delights to do that. This should be marvelous in our eyes. Here's here's the glory of this. Let me me give you this quote. Martin Luther said this. He says, if I were God and the world had treated me as I treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. That's what Luther said. And I say amen. I would too. If we were God, be honest. If, If we were God and people treated us the way that we at one time treated God, We'd kick the wretched thing thing to pieces. Now listen, here's the glory of the gospel. That's not what God did though. See, this is not too hard of a saying. What did God do? What did God do? There's an open-endedness to this story. He did come, right? The owner of the vineyard did come back. He did send his son. And what did his son do? He said, look, if you wanted the inheritance, all you had to do was ask. You didn't have to kill me, even though that's God's plan. All you had to do was ask because you can be a joint heir with the owner. You can be a partaker of his divine nature. You can be blessed with every spiritual blessing that he has. You can be a cone owner and a a, a joint heir with him and be seated together in the heavenly places with this vineyard owner. All you had to do was ask. It was yours for the asking. Isn't that amazing? And then he says, but, but, but hold on. In order for that to happen, we're going to have to trade places. I'm going to have to become an enemy of God and you're going to have to become one of his children. Do you see the glory of the gospel, friends? No other religion in the world can even comprehend this. That God came, he didn't kick the wretched thing to pieces, he traded places with his enemies. Isn't that glorious? That make you want to do a (laughs) backflip? Isn't this marvelous in our eyes? I hope it is. I hope it's marvelous in your eyes. And I hope you don't have to go and read the second volume of Jonathan Edwards' works to get this. It's right here. It's right here in this parable. This is the gospel. You don't have to, to continue to do the mutiny. Mutiny will exhaust you. Lay down your weapons. (laughs) If you're an unbeliever, lay down your weapons and say, Lord, I'm weary, I'm exhausted, I'm tired. And he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your weary souls, for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. I'm humble and lowly of heart. Come to me. And he does that. Isn't that good news? That is the gospel. Pray with me, would you?